Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, June the 18th, 2022. Weekends, especially Saturdays, are days when not much is supposed to happen on the financial markets, but there's drama today. Uh, when you look at the front page of the Financial Times, Bitcoin has slumped below. It's the lead story, even beats lunch with Hillary Clinton, uh, which I'm sure they didn't pay with Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin slumps below its $20,000 threshold. I'm not entirely sure what a threshold means. Um, uh, there's a crisis, according to the FT, who are not necessarily uh, the kind of publication that use the word crisis that often. Crisis in digital assets deepens as the crypto market benchmark drops 9%. For people watching, here we have a nice image of that dramatic drop. The Wall Street Journal, which tends to enjoy, I think, tech crashes more than most of the mainstream media, really enjoying this one. Again, they lead with Bitcoin falling below 20,000 as the crypto sell-off deepens. And they have a wonderful story. The crypto party is over. Um, it's their feature for the weekend. The cryptocurrency industry was built on swagger, enthusiasm and optimism. None of which I think probably reflect the Wall Street Journal. All three are in short supply these days as losses and um, layoffs mount. They really get into it. They talk about the height of the boom, the Super Pole, crypto.com ad, and now everything is crashing around it. The real question, of course, is what all this means. It's clearly, uh, as the journal piece notes, the crypto world is no stranger to booms and busts. This is a classic bust, uh, what apparently crypto people call winters. But the real question is, is this more than a bust? Is it some sort of profound structural change is the game up is the whole thing being just uh, a, a rather sophisticated or perhaps unsophisticated Ponzi scheme a big scam um, Gian Volpicelli from uh, Wired magazine has been on the show before he was on uh, last year in July he's the author of cryptocurrency um, it's uh, how digital money could transform finance it's a wired publication but it's reasonable, hard-headed. Uh, Gian is not um, a crypto lunatic, and I'm thrilled that uh, he's joining us from Dalston in North London, where my father's parents grew up. Gian, uh, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me, Andrew. Uh, Gian, um, you had an interesting piece also in Wired this week. Uh, sure, crypto is crashing, but everything is perfectly fine. Uh, you 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 uh, you write everything is perfectly fine. Ironically, of course. Of course, yeah. is everything perfectly fine? Is the whole thing up? Is it been a big scam? Well, I, I think that there are two answers for to the question. Right. One thing is that you can't really just look only at crypto. What is going on is much vaster than that, and so they all stock markets are in turmoil. Uh, but. And, and so value has been lost in several other parts of the economy. Uh, but the fact that crypto is being affected to such a scale with, uh, I think, $2 trillion uh, lost since its high uh, in November uh, speaks to the fact that a lot of the way 
the cryptography uh, used to think about and also tout crypto uh, is fundamentally wrong, right? I mean, what they used to say was that this will protect them from the kind of turmoils worked from worked by inflation or even by financial unrest of any type. What we have discovered, what we have been discovering for a while, but now we, we just see it uh, in its full at its full scale is that crypto behaves exactly like, like a stock. It's part of the financial system, which used to want to challenge once, and it's actually doing worse than most stocks. And so for all the optimism that is still kind of habitual in some parts of the crypto world, where people say, as, I, as my headline says, everything is fine, like the, the dog uh, in a famous meme uh, in a burning house. Uh, well, it's not fine anymore. It's not really... Fine. Yeah, you're right about that. You put it very nicely. Um, a less charitable meme, sh this is in your word piece this week, a less charitable meme shared by Twitter crypto skeptics, which probably would include myself, compares self-assured crypto investors to a serene dog sipping coffee in a burning shack. This is fine, the dog says, as flames threaten to engulf it. This too shall pass. This idea of things passing was certainly articulated this week by... Um, Another guest on the show, Ethan Lau. He's probably more of an enthusiast than you. He's been on the show before. He's the author of Once a Bitcoin Miner. But mm -hmm. this response, uh, Gian, kind of annoys me. Oh, well, it's just another, it's just another bust. We've had them before. We've had these winters before and we'll have them again. It's not really an argument. It's an article of faith, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, if you if you start uh listening you go around even with, with a kind of uh, friendly disposition which is my disposition and start listening to a lot of crypto podcasts so you start reading a lot of uh, crypto blogs uh, you start hearing the language of i mean almost you, you might have been, been hearing in cult meetings like talking about yeah cling to your guns uh, we will weather this together uh, hit the gym, which is something I heard today in a podcast. You should just ignore the market charts and hit the gym and work on yourself. Uh, so, yeah, it is a bit cultish. Uh, it has been for a while. I mean, I always thought that crypto was essentially born as a as a political technology. Then it became an article of faith, right? It just became almost... Yeah, I mean, there's another word for that, um, G, and it's a religion and people's responses. Uh, religious. Well, God will reappear. Um, mm. So so you sort of half dodged the question about whether or not this has been just one big giant, gigantic scam. Let's go back to that, because that's the key question. Um, mm. I think your point is a really important and interesting one that crypto was always sold as a harbor from the, the storms of the world financial system. And now, if anything, uh, crypto is in the eye of the storm. It's anything but a harbor. Mm -hmm. What does that expose in their argument? The, 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 the typical crypto intellectual, how did they explain why crypto was a harbor? And how has that been profoundly disproven over the last two or three weeks? So I think the way they used to explain it was that crypto was a harbor if it were used as, as, as a kind of currency. Because, of course, it's not issued by central bank. 
So, and there's only a certain, specifically Bitcoin is issued by Central Bank, and there is only a certain quantity of Bitcoin that will be ever minted. So that makes Bitcoin on its own terms inflation resistant. But as soon as Bitcoin did become something else, became something else, became an investment, became essentially a, a, a kind of asset, the whole edifice collapses, right? Because it, it, it gets linked, it gets sucked into the financial system and it gets sucked as something that is very novel and very volatile because as there's no real uh, tangible value you can look, uh, you, you can see in Bitcoin uh, at face value at least. And therefore it's also considered a very risky asset and it's the first asset you pull out of as soon as the wind changes. Yeah, and, and, I, and so you use this word assets really important. I mean, I joked at the beginning that you're in Dalston. My grandparents used to go to the old market in Dalston. You mentioned you went earlier this week. I, I'm sure you didn't use crypto to, to buy. I don't own any crypto. Because, um, yeah. My grandfather used to go down there and pay cash. We still pay cash. The point about crypto is it's nothing. It, it isn't. It, you, you, you talk to you use the C word currency. It's not a currency. Because currencies enable you to buy stuff. You can't buy anything in crypto, really. Still. You... So all it is is an asset. All it is is a form of speculation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, someone would counter that uh, in some parts of the internet, of course, some kinds of cryptos are used as, uh, as currency. And some people will point you to El Salvador. Where, right, exactly. Uh, but, that, but that's my, but you know, the fact that they do that, where El Salvador made a big crypto gamble, as a piece in the BBC, mm -hmm. it's a classic example of a country outside essentially the, the, the conventional financial system buying into crypto, suggesting that they're the clever speculators, and of course, ultimately being burned. The other one that, the other argument that was made by Ethan Lau, which I thought was, again, rather pathetic was I said well oh, okay. give me some some cases in which crypto actually proves its value so he told me the case of a, of a, a female Afghani refugee who had to flee Afghan had some crypto was smart enough to remember the codes in her head so when she showed mm -hmm. up in Germany she'd lost all her cash but she was able to fall back on her crypto assets now maybe that's true who knows but it's such an obscure and absurd example. And again, it just proves the rule that this whole thing has been a complete and utter scam. I, mean, I wouldn't call it a scam. I thought it was uh, born out of a sincere conviction that uh, state-issued money is evil for a, a, a vast array of reasons, right? But you can essentially just go and consult uh, all the writings of the... Uh, Austrian uh, economy school, school of economics, the Vienna uh, school. Uh, but Hayek but, wouldn't have been a Hayek wouldn't have been a crypto enthusiast. Hayek was Hayek was pro private money, right? A lot of private money competing with each other. The yeah, but Hayek accepted the credit, the, the, the need and the legitimacy of a central bank. So yes, I think sort of suggesting that it. somehow this this all comes out of Viennese, the Austrian school of neoliberalism is, is also uh, an exaggeration or a form of wishful thinking. Well, I mean, I, I suppose that that's Silicon Valley's 
reading of those economists. Yeah, well, Silicon Valley doesn't read. It hasn't learned. <laughs> you know that better than I do. And then when it does read, it only reads what it wants to see. You you made the point, and, and this is the key point, I think, Jen. Well, it, it was all well-meaning. These people really, they want to do good. Let, let's take the example of one of these characters, a man called uh, Alex Mashinsky. Uh a Ukrainian, as it happens, um, was a, is currently the CEO of Celsius Networks. He's very famous these days because he wears a T-shirt, and people watching this, called, uh, with, with, the, with, with the message, banks are not your friends. And he founded Celsius Networks, suggesting um, that Celsius was your friend, that it was a kind of... Uh, crypto bank and rather than paying the one or two percent interest if you're lucky from traditional banks he paid you 17 and a half or 18.6 percent according to the journal and of mm -hmm. course and this was inevitable uh celsius has gone bankrupt um so what does that tell us about men like Mashinsky. We can't see inside their minds, of course. We can't know whether or not they knew the whole thing was a scam. But there is something very troubling about smart guys like him who cashed out, who have made fortunes. And it's the ordinary people who are left paying the bill for this sort of things. And then he'll run off to the next thing where he'll print another T-shirt saying, I don't know, government isn't your friend. And he'll create libertarian offshore communities. Yeah, I mean, you, you said he's smart. He's very smart because I would imagine he made a certain amount of money out of Celsius. But well, we know we, we don't need yeah. to imagine. Uh, I mean, it's like Coinbase. Uh, Coinbase yeah, yeah. Is, is in the news now as a platform. They laid off eighteen percent of their. Um, they certainly cashed out of it, uh, right? And the they have cashed but, out. There is news that uh, Coinbase insiders uh, and Coinbase of all these platforms is probably the most legitimate because it's just a trading platform. They dumped nearly $5 billion um, of coin stock uh, after their IPO. So I'm sure Mashinsky did the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, I, what I was getting at is that a lot of the moves we have observed from major crypto actors, maybe ma major institutions, even hedge funds, is that, in my opinion at least, they put a lot of resources into totally fanciful schemes that eventually collapse. Like the, the textbook case is something called Terra, which collapsed in May, this stablecoin, algorithmic stablecoin, predicated on the idea that you could create a, an asset which right. was whose value was pegged to the dollar just by having a kind of incentive system. So you just created two assets and the arbitrage between those two assets would theoretically keep the, its value, the value of the main one, at $1. Of course, it didn't work. It couldn't work. Every single economist has said that it couldn't really work over time. And we knew it didn't work because other algorithmic stable coins had always collapsed. Even another stable coin created by the same creator of Terra's uh, collapsed. Right. So, so this guy, Terra, is in um, the, the founder of Terra, a man called Do Kwan, is a South Korean entrepreneur educated at Stanford. This caused a $40 billion crash. And, and, yeah. and, and both, what's interesting about Terra and Celsius is their argument was, again, a, a religious kind of argument. They suggested that the new laws of physics meant that they were um, unavoidably a harbor, that they were 
whatever happens, safe. And it was just absurd. It's a lie, right? No, it is either a lie or just wishful thinking. Uh, but well, but that's the gray area between a lie and wishful thinking. It's always easy to claim wishful thinking when you're lying. If you're an entrepreneur and you're convincing people to put money into a scheme which you know is flawed, which you know is profoundly liable to crash and cashing out yourself and then everybody else loses their money. That's a classic Ponzi scheme. That's Bernie Madoff. No, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. And in Celsius' case, I can tell you, this is almost a scoop. So on your podcast, Andrew, that uh, they know, they, they, they realize that they would have to suspend all withdrawals, which they did on Sunday, uh, last Sunday, uh, almost a month ago, essentially. Uh, so the they realized that their loss uh, from terror for the terror crash would have put them in jeopardy. And so they already were preparing for what came last week. So this is Mashinsky. So you, what you're saying is Mashinsky knew exactly what he was doing. He put out press releases saying everything was safe. And then the thing crashed. So perhaps he should change his T-shirt. Celsius is not your friend. So they knew exactly what they were doing. Maybe not when they bought terror, believing that uh, two digital assets supposed to be prop, propped up to, the, to a dollar's value just by the goodwill and beliefs of a community could actually work. Maybe, maybe it, it was actually hopeful that Terra could work, but after a while, when Terra crashed, I think he, he saw very clearly that the direction was... So, so let's, let's, uh, some of our audience are not going to be as literate and familiar with this crypto stuff as, as you are, uh, Gian. Just explain... And this seems to be a sort of a, a circular firing squad in a sense. Terra is or was a fraudulent cryptocurrency and it was traded on Celsius and Celsius offered these absurd interest rates. So everyone's playing off everyone else. Is that fair? I think... I mean, I don't know what everyone is playing or everyone else, but the but system. But it's all becomes, part of a system of. It became so integrated system. that, yeah, it became terribly integrated to the point that when Terra collapsed, a lot of people understood that the fat lady was about to sing for them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I was actually called by someone, a friend of mine, if you wish, who the day after the Terra crash, he told me I'd lost like two hundred thousand dollars in two hours because of Terra's. Uh, ending. So a lot of people, even unsuspectables, were in terror just because almost all the industry, uh, not everyone, I have to be fair, but almost all the industry believed that you could have this made up money just propped up by beliefs and incentives. And so, it's yeah, religion. Well, it's you... a childish form of religion. And the really sad thing, and the Wall Street Journal's done a good job here, is running these stories about people who put their retirement funds, their kids' college savings into this thing, thinking that that they were guaranteed some sort of return and that it was as safe as a bank, which of course it isn't. And as uh, the SEC has tried to make clear, the US regulators, that this stuff is not guaranteed. Let's look for responsibility here, Gian. I mean, to some extent, individual investors have to be accountable. If they're stupid enough to put their money into this, especially if they don't have a lot of money, then they essentially deserve what they get, don't they? I mean, the, the kind of macro view, if you want to go much, much 
higher above my pay grade, but out There's in Bailey. There's nothing above your pay grade, Jim. Well, thank you, Andrew. Term. But no, what I'm saying is that there seems to have been a stretch of time, a, a decade, almost a decade, in which there was a lot of cheap capital and people were always looking for new esoteric forms of investment. And crypto was just the like the, the pinnacle of it, but it wasn't the only one. That's why a lot of a lot of crypto people I spoke to, they kept saying, well, what about Netflix stocks? Which, okay, it, it's a stupid answer, but what it is true is that it was piggybacking uh, off that kind of general yeasty situation where capital was fairly easy to get right. in the US, and you were just looking for more opportunities to invest in yeah, it, new it, stuff. It's, right. It's a good point. I actually wrote something about it this week. Crypto crashes, inflation, gun-toting white nationalists. Uh, I called it Steve Bannon's perfect storm. Good one. And certainly it's all linked back. I did an interview with Christopher Leonard, Lord of ED Money, the author of Lords of ED Money. A lot of this is bound up with the Fed policy of quantitative easing and, and, and simply too much cash flooding the system. So as you say, the whole thing was froth, but uh, crypto was the froth on top of the froth, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like the cappuccino foam. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. And, and the, the sprinkle on top of the froth. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months, stuff like NFTs, right? Rising, non-fungible tokens. So you essentially buy a piece of cryptocurrency that theoretically gives you ownership of something like a, a profile picture on Twitter and you own it. And valuations arrive to, I think, $200,000 for the picture of an ape, the famous uh, board apes. Yeah. So the fact that those new, almost ridiculous, mimetic forms of investment, and you can, of course, bring it all the way to GameStop and Robinhood, but that speaks to a, a general availability of cash. And the gamification of finance is, in a way, a function, a byproduct. There, there was a lot of uh, arcade coins to use to game to play that financial game P crypto was just the worst possibly yeah and the irony if you look at it in terms of the the rise and fall of neoliberalism is it's the this is the last act of un a liberal a neoliberal age or at least that's what i believe and many others as well i rely on the work of historians like gary gerstle who knows what's the future is the past is neoliberalism the the crypto people are sort of hardcore neoliberals. They're economic libertarians. They don't quite understand, I think, the historical circumstance. They don't understand that they're the past rather than the future. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm not anti-crypto by any stretch of the imagination. You I'm are. You just won't admit it. <laughs> I'm not either pro. You're, you're too smart not to be anti-crypto. What I think is, though, that Crypto was clearly born out of the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, as you remember, the Bitcoin white paper started with a line from the London Times about a bailout, which, in which was seen as a kind of uh, decrying of such bailout. And the kind of solution was Bitcoin and crypto. So, but, but since then, crypto hasn't really been facing an actual recession, a real one. And so, and now it's not working, right? It's not, it's not. It's, it's, it's actually doing worse than Netflix stocks. So I really cannot understand what the thesis will be going forward. Because if Bitcoin was a solution for the 2008 recession, I, now history has almost disproven the theory, right? 
So I, I can't say where it goes from now. It could just go forward, just becoming something else, take up some kind of new connotation. Uh, but right now, the theory of Bitcoin as anti-crisis doesn't hold. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of the uh, economic historian Carlotta Perez. She's very smart. She, she wrote a very influential book in 2002 called Technological Revolutions and Financial, Financial Capital, Capital, The yeah. Dynamics of Bubbles and Golden Age. It's not a very sexy title, but it's a really good book, which suggests that in every boom, in every dot-com boom or crypto boom, something of value is built, the plumbing is built, Everything crashes, but then it comes back. That certainly happened after the dot-com boom. You know, the great beneficiaries of Web 2.0 were already around before the crash, Amazon and mm -hmm. Google and so on. My question for you is something has been built, clearly. It must have been over the last 10 years or over the last 15 since the 2008 crash. But when a, a future Carlotta Perez looks back, at this period, what are they going to see? What plumbing exists? Is there anything, is there any meaningful legacy of Web3? Is there anything that's going to be left that can be built on for future generations, which are real businesses, real value, real meaning? So I, I will start with Bitcoin itself. I think Bitcoin, as you a bit sneeringly uh, told me, uh, is used, or it has been said to be used uh, in crisis situations, right? So that thing, the fact that the Afghan refugee or the the Salvadorian um, McDonald worker in in the US sending money back home using Bitcoin, that use that utility exists and it probably won't be really shuttered. Uh, so Bitcoin as currency, if you want to sort of uh, end with a no true Scott. Uh, paradox. It hasn't really been tried yet, right? Apart from El Salvador. Uh, and that's one thing. But what I think, another thing that I think crypto might have built with some success is open source, decentralized companies, networks, where a system of incentives can sustain the efforts of individual open source contributors. So for instance, one thing I always go back to is this company called Helium, which is building essential uh, um, a decentralized internet network, a mesh network of some kind. And the way it is doing it worldwide is by creating a, a mechanism that rewards users, rewards people who buy the modem and put them up and create this. Right. So, so for, 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 for people who don't, you know, non-technical people, what I think, um, what I think Jen is talking about, and there is some, this makes a lot of sense is imagine Uber without Uber or imagine a lot of drivers and riders who, who connect directly without having to have a central operation like mm -hmm. Uber, which takes a lot of the profits. It, it, that, that's what you're talking about, right? That's one other thing, I think. What I'm saying is that you can create open source projects and uh, your open source projects are usually voluntaristic. They rely on volunteers. But if you create a token system that in a way relies on speculation on secondary markets, of course, uh, you might reward contributors to open source projects in a much more decentralized and digital so, so this way. could be a way of, say, paying people who contribute to Wikipedia? For instance, that's one. What you said is kind of the next steps, which is essentially a, a company which is self-run. Uh, right. So this <laughs> is the famous or infamous DAO. DAOs, uh, 
decentralized or autonomous organizations, which is yes. another kind of religious term that the techies have invented to imagine a libertarian utopia, which again, doesn't seem to make any sense, but maybe offers some possibility. So you think that's could be real? And what has been built so far over the last 10 or 15 years to make that more real, Gian? Oh, DAOs uh, per se have only been really ex experimented with in internal crypto circles, right? So decentralized finance is the, the name of, of this kind of galaxy of autonomous uh, entities that work as market makers, for instance. And so you give them your Bitcoin and they give you back some Ethereum and then you stake it, which means essentially you put it, you deposit it in and automatically get some kind of interest and it's all run by algorithms. I'm not sure it's the kind of DAO you would like, Andrew, <laughs> because it's still part of this yeah. fanfare of speculation, automated well, you know, investment. I'm probably I'm fairly skeptical, but that's my job, right? Got to have someone like no, no, that. Let's one. talk about the press, though, and their responsibility. I, I think, Jian, you, you do a very good job. You're very fair. But, you know, when you look at the cover of Wired today, in contrast with the, the FT or... The journal. There's nothing about. Um, there's nothing about crypto. So, and, I, and I'm not putting my fingers just at wired. You can say you see the same throughout the, the the tech media. They build this stuff up, and then they move on to the next thing. So I've done lots of interviews with all sorts of journalists. Camillo Russo, for example, a year or mm -hmm. two ago, wrote a book about Ethereum. Yeah. They all build this stuff up. They all speak about it as if it's the next big thing. But then you can't find them. When, uh, when when the whole thing crashes. So I sent a, a text to Camilla. Uh, I haven't heard back from her. You're willing to come on and talk about this stuff. How oh, yeah. response, how, what, what, what should this have taught the tech media generally about being a little bit more circumspect, a little bit more critical? Because you have some responsibility, I think, for this nonsense. Not you personally, but the right, entire tech media. Now, to the, to the homepage of Wired, actually, my article and another article about the crash was in the homepage yesterday. Oh, yesterday. good. Well, oh, I should put it back A up. bit longer. Uh, you're right. But yeah, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know why, but I, I suppose there was a, a new story that took its place. No, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I haven't seen a lot of uh, boosterism from tech media. I've mostly seen boosterism from financial media. I don't want to name names, but I've seen a lot of Fortune or Forbes covers featuring this or that coin, oh, coin master yeah those those places now are self-published they're just marketing platforms they're not real magazines you it's a pay-to-play operation i think forbes and fortune yeah uh, even, yeah you're probably right in that in, in those specific cases i think most of the other um, financial media like bloomberg have been pretty fair the ft is almost too snarky about it as yeah. for the tech media, I don't know. I mean, I think Wired has been pretty even-handed about it. Uh, I can't really think of many technology uh, publications, apart from crypto-specific publications, which are a bit like the watchtower for the, uh, <laughs> for the uh, crypto's Jehovah Witnesses, if you wish. Uh, apart from those publications, which are specifically about crypto, I think the media has mostly been touching crypto with a barge pole from afar, and kind of prodding it, but in a way they were either incredibly scathing or they were boosteristic, but for a very short time without really understanding the technology. 
the lack of even-handed reporting was probably the main problem there. There were a lot of complaints after 2008 that none of the, the heads of banks went to jail. Uh, they all sort of escaped scot-free. A lot of them actually got bailed out by the government. Uh, the Mashinskis of the world, the Brian Andersons from Coinbase, the people who have really cashed out and maybe told some lies or certainly skirted the truth. Do you expect any of them to be accountable? Will any of them be fined, end up in jail, do you think? I mean, I can't really predict any of that. It, it, it all depends on whether they misled the, uh, the investors. There's going to be a, a huge amount of, of court cases already that the media is full of one crypto investor suing another, suing suing Binance, another platform for falsely yeah. advertising Terra USD as a safe asset. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's anything a, safe. I think there will be many more lawsuits. Whether any of those companies will be uh, held accountable, or whether any of those executives will be held accountable, and it depends on what we are holding them accountable for. Um, for sure. There will be some kind of reckoning in for the worst cases, even if, of course, if you want, if you wish, the lack of regulation is also exactly what allowed for the mushrooming of this. Yeah, the lawyers will schemes, win. Right? Uh, Gian, I'm married to a lawyer. They always win in the end, don't they? They win one way or the other. Finally, Gian, there could be people watching this who still have crypto, who still have some faith. Should they just sell, get out of it, put their money into a bank, take the one percent interest, and forget about money for a while? No, oh, I've, I've really, I've, I've, I've no idea. Uh, the, the kind of watchword uh, in crypto circles is to huddle, right? Which is to hold your assets. Uh, what? Let's say, that, say that again. Huddle. What is it? Huddle. Huddle. It's misspelling of hold. Huddle. Huddle. Yeah. Oh, you know, my uh, football team used to have a player called Glenn Huddle. Oh well, so, uh, <laughs> he should launch a token. Not too far from Dalston, so uh, I, I don't think his name should be sullied by the tech community. <laughs> it has been sullied for a while. Uh, I don't know. It really depends on how much they've lost, how much they can afford to lose, and whether they are hoping to play in the long game. Uh, I have no idea whether crypto will recover. Uh, the long game, G, and you don't need me to tell you this. Uh, we're all dead. In the long right? run, we're all dead. <laughs> Famously said by another very famous English economist, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, G and I think is too polite to tell all of you to sell, but you should take it from me. Put your money into real things. Go out for dinner. Go to Dalston Market. G and an honor as always. Finally, uh, what else? Uh, people should still read you. I think your book, Crypto uh, Currency, How Digital Money Could Transform Finance. It's still a relevant text. You're very honest. You don't you're anything but religious in your analysis. And of course, digital money isn't just really crypto. Platforms like PayPal and, and Square now are very much involved in all this. So anything else you're reading, Gian? So yeah, uh, I've been reading a couple of interesting books that are kind of relevant to this topic. One is uh, Reality Plus by philosopher of mine, David Chalmers, which is about- Yeah, I've heard of that book. I need to get him on the show. Yeah, you should. I mean, uh, it, it kind of- uh, uh, doubles a bit in the metaverse concept, which has become part of the propaganda machine around crypto over the past few months. Yeah. Uh, but from a very philosophical point of view. So yeah. it's a, almost a Cartesian book about whether virtual worlds are real or not. 
uh, which is very relevant to today. Yeah, and, uh, and if we want to, we'll do another show, Gian, about meta as a big scam too. That's another subject. Everything is a scam. <laughs> no, the other one I've been reading is a book by a writer called Elizabeth Sandifer. The book is called Neo Reaction, a Basilisk. It's about this uh, budding and thriving uh, corner of the internet called the Neo Reaction sphere. Uh, people like uh, Curtis Yarvin or um, Nick Land. But the reason why they're relevant is that I think their ideology is also now the ideology of people like, for instance, Peter Thiel. And so they are wielding increasing, increasingly massive power, not massive, but intellectual heft. Uh, and the book explains the links between the new reactionary thinking, which is the idea that we should abolish democracy and put a CEO in charge. Right. Well, well, can can you remind us of the, give us the title and the author again, another important book. I need to get them on the show too. Elizabeth Sandifer, Neo Reaction, a Basilisk. It's a re reference to a meme, which is Rocco's Basilisk about AI risk. Um, you might have been familiar with that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's essentially about the rise of neo reactionaries and what they actually think.